is Truth Talks. Welcome back, everyone, to the Truth Talks podcast. I'm your host, Buddy Boone. Thank you all for tuning in today. Uh, we're going to do something a little different here. We're going to call this a throwback Thursday, and we're going to go back to 2017, three years ago, when uh, Pastor Matt actually did a Sunday school lesson. and did a several Sunday school lessons on the history of the church. Uh, I definitely advise you to go to bellcroft.org and check them out. But this is from the series of church history. And specifically speaking of the Reformation and the five solas, uh, this is a great, uh, just great history lesson. I definitely encourage you all to listen, take notes if you have to, uh, or you should. <laughs> Either way, I know I needed to, um, even though some of the stuff that I've heard before, uh, it was great to hear it again. Also, uh, this Saturday, I'll be coming out with the um, the last part of our conversation uh, talking about Martin Luther and the Reformation. So tune in for that, for that special edition Saturday. Now, without further ado, here is Pastor Matt on September 10th, 2017 in Sunday School. Enjoy. Good to be with you this morning. What a blessing it is to be here, to jump back into our church history. I just want to, I want to go back and talk about Martin Luther a little bit more before we move on to uh, Mr. Zwingli here in a minute, but um, we were wrapping up Martin Luther last week, and uh, I don't know about you, but I was encouraged just in that study and considering his life and the blessing that he was on so many levels, um, but was far from perfect, as all the reformers were far from perfect. I don't know about you. I'm far from perfect. I, not, you know, I'll let you decide where you're at in that, but uh, these reformers, you know, the magisterial reformers, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute and describe to you what that means, and it's an important term as you study the Reformation. The magisterial reformers would be guys like Martin Luther, be guys like Zwingli and John Calvin in particular. Those would have been the three big magisterial reformers, and that basically just means that they believed it was even a carryover from the, from the culture and the, and the deep Roman Catholicism of the day that they, they carried with them in the Reformation, this idea that the church and state should be one, that the state really was the enforcement arm of the church. And of course, that was you know, promoted. We've seen that now since the 500s. You've been watching that where the, even when Constantine comes in and even makes Christianity the state religion, in like 313, but it becomes official in like 380, and then that starts to grow the state's power, and then they start enforcing it. And of course, they, um, again, unbiblically, but that was the culture of the day, start to uh, persecute and even condemn heretics. Now, this is the church rightly defining people as heretics, but then the church executing them. I mean, that, that culture had been going on by the time you get to the Reformation for over a thousand years. Sometimes it was more than others, but that was the culture of the day. That was the practice of the day. And of course, you had, it on, you had it on both sides. So then when Roman Catholicism takes over, then they're defining heretics, not biblically, unbiblically, because most of the time the heretics that they defined were the faithful Christians. And so then they start executing, you know, John Wycliffe, John Huss. We've looked at all those guys in the past, the pre-reformers. Peter uh, Lombard and the Lollards and guys like that, the Hussites. So they're persecuting them, burning them at the stake. You taught you about John Wycliffe where he died of a heart attack, but he was such a thorn in the Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholic side that they condemned him even after he was dead, dug up his bones and burned them. I mean, that's how serious they were to set, a, to set in motion a precedent 
that if you go against the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, this is what will happen to you. So much so that when Martin Luther was um, being confronted for his writings, for his beliefs, as he was going against the Pope not to overthrow it, and I've I've labored last week, and I'm going back to this to make sure you understand this because this is so vital in understanding the Reformation, how it began and how it ended. The whole idea that Luther and even the pre-reformers, John Wycliffe and all those guys, they were trying to be good Roman Catholics, right? They were trying their best to stay in the church but reform the church from the inside. They wanted to purify. They knew it was wrong. They knew what they were teaching was not right. They could see it in Scripture, and they were trying to fix it on the inside. And why I bring that up? Because I think that's, that's commendable. I think that's biblical, right? You don't, don't, go, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't go running off and starting your own thing. Though that happens a lot today for every you know, little wind of doctrine. They didn't do that. And they, I mean, they, had, they were dealing with serious stuff. I mean, massive issues, purgatory, veneration of saints, the celibacy of, of priests and pastors, like all this unbiblical stuff that was being promoted. And of course, the biggest, that you were saved through works, not by grace, through faith alone. And yet, even in all of that, they were like confronting the popes, confronting the bishops, saying, look, this is what the scripture teaches. We need to fix that. And I even demonstrated um, last week and gave you a copy of the 95 Thesis in your notes and showed you that even in those, Luther multiple times speaks even honorably to the Pope at times or even to the church at times because even in that he wasn't ready to break away. He wrote the 95 Thesis in Latin. It was not written in German, so he was not trying to create a problem. He, was, he wrote it in Latin, which was the academic language of the day. Common person couldn't read that, so he knew that. So a lot of people have this, you know, have this vision of him angry, you know, he's an angry man and he's going up to the to the church door and he's got his mallet and this and he's you know you know basically cursing and he's like, I'm gonna get them you know, that's not the picture right he was a teacher he was a professor and church doors you can almost envision it that was where you po it was almost like the uh, bulletin board of the day if you had a theological um, conflict or you wanted to have a theological debate or if you wanted to air grievances against something that was taught or preached. That's where, that's where you would do it. You didn't have blogs. You didn't have Facebook. You didn't have Internet. You didn't have that where today you'll just, you know, pastor, you said this in your email or you said this in your sermon and you send me an email, right? And so, and we work it out. Well, they didn't have that. They had the church door. And so, especially among the staff and the faculty of colleges, that's where they would post things. So he was just following the normal practice of the day. And clearly he was, he was upset and concerned but he wasn't trying to start this massive division, okay? And, I, and I've been telling you that, and uh, I think that's pretty clear by now. And I even was showing you that even when he wrote that, there's a very, very strong possibility, I believe so, along with many other people who studied church history, that Martin Luther probably wasn't even converted when he wrote that. There's no explanation, there's no declaration, there's no defense, there's no argument for justification by faith. The 95 Thesis is nothing more than his irritation with indulgences and the practice of this, this idea that if you, if you give money to, to the Pope, so to speak, through Titzel and the whole band of, of money collectors there, if you give money on behalf of your grandmother, your mother, whoever's in purgatory, if you give money on behalf of them, then their, their sentence in purgatory is lessened. And, you, you know, that's what he was upset about because you can't find that in Scripture. And then, of course, you had 
the guy like I showed you last week, Johann Tetzel, who was the masterful Roman Catholic evangelist by way of uh, raising money. And he came in with his uh, PowerPoint of the day, the screens on the carts, that they, the paintings of people burning in hell. And he would, you know, teach this, preach this, this terrible message about your grandmother's burning in hell. And I can hear her cries now. And he was just pulling on the heartstrings, a very sensational message, trying to get people emotionally engaged, pulling on their emotions, which is never biblical. I think Paul even is referencing that even in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 when he talks about we have denounced shameful ways. We have denounced the ways of the world when we preach. And he says we just come very blandly, very boldly, but pretty bland. We just preach the word, Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're not bringing in all this other stuff to try to manipulate you. And he even says there at the end of uh, in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, and I do all of this in a very bland, upfront, but I just preach so that the power of God, so that you're resting in the power of God, not in the power of man's words. Well, they were doing the opposite of that. They had this message all truncated to pull on heartstrings, and they did. People were giving away everything, and of course, the great cathedral in Rome was being built on the backs of all of that nonsense, and that's what Martin Luther was so frustrated about. It's not until you get to 1519 that Martin Luther really then begins to demonstrate conversion, meaning when he, he goes back through and he's reading through Galatians, he's reading through Romans, he's been teaching this in the University of Wittenberg, and he's going through and he starts, he, something happens in 1519. And you can trace this if you study his life. In 1519, he goes on a rampage of writing, and then very clearly in his speech and his writing, he says, the Roman Catholic Church is done. We've got to get away from them. They're apostate, they're of the devil. I mean, his, his writing, his verbiage, everything changes. And it's all based upon justification by faith. This reality, the gospel's gone. There is no gospel there because they have this system. So in his own writing, in the preface, in his work on Galatians, he says in himself that he talks about his conversion experience. And while he doesn't put a date on it, and we wish he did, he talks in such a way that leads most people to believe he's referencing this time in 1519 when he started to write and really go after the church. So, but one of the things that's interesting about him and the magisterial reformers was when they separated from the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm telling you this because this is a really big issue when you deal with Zwingli, because if, if you have any understanding of Reformation, most of you would probably say, yeah, I line up more with Zwingli than I do John Calvin or Martin Luther. And I would say, be careful of saying that because I'll tell you Zwingli killed more people than Martin Luther or John Calvin put together. And so most people don't realize that. He, he, had a, he had a starry start and a very sad finish, and I'll explain all that to you. But it's going back to this reality of, of they, they moved away from the Roman Catholic Church, but they didn't move far enough. And that's where the Anabaptists come on the scene, and I'll explain them. They went even further, and it just keeps going, which is a good thing. So like um, Martin Luther continued to struggle with you know, the Roman Catholic Mass, and so he didn't believe in the way that they did it, but he didn't completely get rid of it. He didn't completely reform it. He held on to parts of it, and that, that becomes a, a real issue where Roman Catholic Mass believes that the, the, the blood or the wine representing the blood of Christ and the wafer or the bread representing the body of Christ actually through the ministry of, of the bishop who's performing the Mass as he's 
going through his prayers, actually, it's during that time that the bread and the blood turns into literally the body and blood of Christ. Martin Luther, when he did his first mass, which remember he was studying to be a priest, and somebody asked me about this uh, last week. I think it was uh, Owen. Owen Tolles was asking me. And I was telling you about Martin Luther's struggle with his father. You remember that? And I was explaining how he had a sad relationship with his dad because uh, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer and uh, he was on his way to be a lawyer and then that famous lightning storm, thunderstorm where the lightning almost struck him and being a good Roman Catholic, he prayed to St. Anne to help him and prayed that if she would save him, he would devote his life to being a, a monk and a priest. Well, he made it through the storm and he followed through with his vow and his dad was never happy after that and they had a very sordid relationship because his dad spent a lot of money to get him, you know, put him in school, and there was just issues. So his dad ends up coming to his first mass because it's kind of a big deal. He's kind of officially now, he's a priest in the sense that he can officiate mass. And so he goes through it, and, and it's pretty much a disaster. Like, he's scared to death. He's, just like, shaking all over the place. He's just, a, he's just an emotional mess. And the whole reason was was because he, a good Roman Catholic, he actually believed that. He actually believed that when he's up there, what he's doing actually becomes like he's holding Christ in his hands. He's, I mean, you can imagine how scary, right? I mean, just think about that. And, you know, and so he's scared to death. I'm going to drop some of the blood. I'm going to, I mean, he's just, and his dad's watching. And even after that, his dad basically makes a comment to him. He's like, you can't even do that right, you know? And so he had this difficult relationship with his dad that comes out throughout his life and multiple times as you read biographies on him and some of his writings, which is really sad and yet at the same time, it's reality. It's one of the things I like about Martin Luther, um, even beyond some of the other magisterial reformers, is Martin Luther was a real, real guy. Like, he wore his heart on his sleeve. Um, he spoke his mind, sometimes way too much, had uh, choice words he would use regularly, and, uh, but he was, a, he was a man's man. He, he, w- he had a hard life, um, especially being the, the lightning rod, or so to speak, the thunder of the, of the Reformation. He was hunted and chased most of his life. So you can imagine living like that, ostracized from your family, ostracized from your world, you know, on the run. It just, it was, it was hard. So one thing I started talking about last week that I wanted to uh, continue was Martin Luther was a family man. Something about him that a lot of people don't know. He loved children. He loved people in large part. That's what the whole 95 thesis was. He was saddened by the abuse of the people through the the, this, this false doctrine of indulgences. And so he was a people's man. He was a passionate man, uh, for sure. But um, he loved children. He had six, he and his, his wife, he marries the runaway nun, um, who was about 15, 20 years younger than he was, which is, which is fun to read about, but they loved each other dearly. They had six kids. Two of them died before he dies. One, one dies, Elizabeth dies at about eight months, and Magdalena dies at 13. He writes quite a bit about Magdalena, because when she died, it really, really affected him. He had a really deep relationship with her. Why am I bringing this up? Do you remember last week I told you that when Martin Luther married um, Katie, his wife, he was probably, well, no doubt, for sure, the first, the first, because he would have been in many ways, at least publicly, the first pastor in a thousand years because they were under the, the system, the Roman Catholic system, but he would have been the first pastor to be married. It's just phenomenal to think about. Right? So you wonder about the dark ages, the medieval times, the struggle of theology and 
sanctification and living godly. Imagine if you're here, I don't know about you, but marriage is one of my greatest blessings in this world, but it's also not the easiest thing to do because my heart is sinful. I know not as, you know, I'm not as uh, great as where you guys are, but I know I have to fight to be a godly man and be a good husband. It's not easy. Imagine if you had no good examples. As a matter of fact, imagine if your pastor, your bishops, as was the problem with the Roman Catholic system, they didn't have wives because they weren't allowed to, but they all had mistresses, and you all knew about it, and they're just running around and doing their thing, and so there you are as a husband, and this is your example. So what are you going to do? Are you going to follow in line? So you can understand why lives were a mess just in that one point. Well, Martin Luther comes on the scene, and he, you know, again, going against the, the system of the day, not following that system, marries this run, runaway nun, starts having kids. Well, guess what? They start becoming the model of what a godly marriage looks like, and people are coming to their home. Have you ever heard of table talk? Um, R.C. Sproul's ministry, Lingonier, puts this out even now, and it's, it's literally, it's, a, it's almost a recapitulation of Martin Luther's ministry. It was, it was the, um, the internet blog before the internet was created. So he did this thing, what was called table talk, and he would open his house. His house was virtually open nonstop, and there were always people in it. He actually got an old monastery that was given to him to be a, their home. It had like 48 rooms, and uh, he housed the college students. He housed everybody. I mean, he just, oh, he was just a very generous, benevolent man. And so there were always people in his home and they always opened their kitchen. So what he would do after dinner, their kitchen was open and everybody would come around and hang around his table and they would talk. It's called table talk. And they would talk doctrine, theology, practice, life. How is it being married? How do you raise children? So on and so forth. So again, you see the impact of the Reformation is, is far more than just theological statements, right? We see that as like, this is it, right? Our doctrinal statement. But it was practical. It was life. And uh, when it comes to children, right? I'm, I was a children's pastor, family pastor. I love kids. Uh, I want to see our children's ministry here be way more than it is now. And it has the potential and we've got to work at it. But what a blessing we have to support families and reach out to the hearts of these children. Can I tell you who really was the was the foundational um, pioneer when it comes to teaching children was Martin Luther. So he would open his house, again, his table, every morning for children to come and sit around his table, and he would teach them. Again, this is what he said. He said, if we don't teach our children these reformational truths, he said, it'll be gone in 100 years. And so he believed that. He believed this was the next generation, and he wanted to go after them. He wanted to train them. He wanted to raise them up. And so you've heard of catechism and all of that. Well, he was the first one to write a children's catechism. And so he, he had an adult catechism that he would teach his college students and, and the people around him. But then he took that and broke it down and made it even smaller and bite-sized chunks of truth and wrote one for the children. I have it. I've used parts of it even with my kids. And so he wrote that. So again, you, you see the impact of his life and ministry and the blessing of the Reformation. But all of that said, he, he wasn't perfect. He had issues even theologically that I wouldn't agree with. He said some really harsh things uh, against Jews, and there's reasons for that. Um, yeah, he, he had reached out to the Jews. He had actually evangelized the Jews very passionately and even befriended a number of Jews, and then they turned their back on him, and he got very offended, and this was Martin Luther. He, again, pretty vulgar, pretty, like, you offend him, all right, he's going to let you know. 
And so he wrote some pretty harsh things that were not right or godly or helpful, but we have those in writing. And so you see his flaws coming out. You see him as a, as a sinful man, as we all are, and yet God, in, in spite of all of that, despite that, uses him anyway, and that's a blessing for all of us. Um, he was also, because of the Reformation, he was the one that really started bringing in hymn singing into the church. So again, the impact of, his, of that point in time continues today on like so many levels. And so the hymn singing that we enjoy, or the singing that we enjoy, really traces a lot of its roots back to Martin Luther and what, and what he did. Um, he died in 1546 on January 18th. He uh, basically preaches his last sermon, and a month later, he dies. I think I told you that in his lifetime, he preached well over 3,000 sermons. Between the deaths of Elizabeth, which I think was 15, like 1527, and about 12 to 18 months later, um, Magdalena dies. Within that 12 to 18-month period, he preached 200 sermons, and that's losing a child in that. And so you can imagine the stress and a, and a father with young children and a professor of a college and the lightning rod of the Reformation. I mean, he's just nonstop. And yet he still preached 200 sermons in that time. I mean, he was just like a machine. I think I told you in 1519 when he started, again, where I think conversion really, really took heart in his life, he started writing and they had three printing presses and they could not keep up with his writing. They actually asked him, can you slow down? Because these printing presses cannot keep up. I mean, that's how he was on fire and no doubt used even by the Holy Spirit to do that. So, yeah, I, I, did, I, I wasn't able to say all of that last week because of the depth of his life and all that we looked at. And so I wanted to just finalize some of that and bring even a full-orbed picture that he wasn't perfect and didn't want to over, overstate certain things but didn't want to miss it. So all that said now... Um, we move from the Reformation, which really takes place in Germany, right, and under, under Luther and what he's doing there, and now the Reformation is moving, it's spreading, it's going out, and uh, the printing press is working, documents are being spread hither and yon, people are traveling, they're hearing about this, and so the Reformation now goes to Switzerland, right, that's where Zwingli is. So in Switzerland now, a, a Reformation similar starts to take place, Reformational truths, Zwingli starts to stand up to, to the Roman Catholicism, to the Roman Catholic system of the day. He's an interesting guy. Now, I, I want to say this again for clarity's sake because I, I do think this is vital in understanding the Reformation and seeing it rightly. Again, there was a lot of things these guys did I wouldn't agree with, especially when it comes to executing or even speaking in ways that they spoke and using terminology and all of that. However, like I said a minute ago, you have to, and I have this on your notes on page uh, one and two. I give a pretty long summary I wrote out for you guys and even copied a, a good section out of Stephen Nichols' book, which I thought did a good job of this. You have to place yourself in the culture of the day to understand what was going on so that when you see how they responded. You have to understand that it was so dark and it was so bleak that for these guys to abandon everything and be where we are today would have been totally unheard of, would have been totally unheard of. Like, like I said, the separation of the church and state and not seeing the government as the arm of the church to enforce the doctrine of the church. That's what they saw. That's the Holy Roman Empire. That was this wedding that took place. 
started in 500s and you can go back all the way to Charlemagne and what we talked about in the 800s when they tried to resurrect the Holy Roman Empire, never came back to what it once was, but they tried to. And part of how they tried to do that was this wedding of the church and state where the church would be the, the voice of the state and the state would be the arm of the church. And you had this, you know, almost this military might behind the church that enforced, if you don't believe our doctrine, the emperor's coming and he's going to take you out. And so you have this, like I said, you had, you had, even when Constantine came in, I talked to you guys about this, that when a state makes you, makes you obey their religion, what happens to the people in that religion? You just have a bunch of chocolate Christians, right? I think I, t- I talked about that, who aren't really Christians, right? But they're just by the state, I have to do this. It's kind of like um, a lot of people in China, right? They have to follow atheism. They have to be communists. I mean, it's the law. And yet undertones how many Christians are there, right, who would not identify with that. But the state would say, yes, we're all communists. And so, yeah, when the state comes in and starts enforcing that, it's, it's, there's no base to it. So when the Reformation happens, you have this... Uh, you have this struggle between these guys pulling away and how much do they pull away, how much do they know, and you see that really strongly in Zwingli. So on page three, Zwingli was a, um, he was a military guy, and this comes out in his life. Of course, if you know anything about Switzerland, right, they're known for what, mercenaries? That was kind of, that's their history, it still is in many ways. Um, so Switzerland uh, became, in, in, in every way, and this time, they were one of the strongest armies of the Roman Catholic Church. They were the paid mercenaries. So the Roman Catholic Church, of course, had their armies, as again, because of the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, they had them spread all over. And Switzerland provided a strong military base for the church. And uh, Zwingli was part of that on multiple levels. He actually, um, when he was a priest, he got sucked into this and even went to war. And while he was, uh, they got annihilated, he was fighting for the Roman Catholic Church, and, and they, they got decimated, and so many people got killed, and, and it really affected him. And that's when he really started to preach and, and bring about a reformation as he was standing against the Roman Catholic teaching. Now, all this happened in a place called Zurich, and I was going to put a map in your, in your documents, but I, 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 I ran out of time. But this all happened in a place called Zurich, and... Uh, over something that's really interesting, okay? It was called sausage, okay? How could sausage create a, create a reformation in Switzerland? Well, again, back to Roman Catholic teaching, there's a thing called Lent. Some of you will have heard that. During Lent, you're not allowed to eat meat, okay? You have certain dietary restrictions. Again, it's the system that you have to follow. And so that's going out. And so Zwingli's invited to a sausage supper during Lent. Roman Catholic priest, preacher, and all these people are eating sausage. And he refrains. And then he starts thinking about this and said, you know, I ought to to study the scriptures and see if this is there. And he starts studying the scriptures. And he not only does not find that, he actually finds the opposite. Like in Colossians where it says, let no man judge you by days, feasts, what you eat. I mean, the scripture is pretty clear. And he starts going, what is this? So, so it's interesting when you, when you look at it, it's funny how it's the mundane events of life often bring about some massive changes in life. You know, you're not expecting it. You go to a sausage supper and you're just there to fellowship and enjoy, you know, the camaraderie. And then all of a sudden you're 
heart is provoked and you start studying. And so, yeah, that's what's interesting about the Reformation here. So, and some of that is even on, um, on page five there where you can, I, some of that's written out for you and you can go back and look at that. So he starts protesting, he starts studying, he starts reading. Of course, he's impacted by Luther and other writings and he starts realizing that uh, this, is, this, is, this is all wrong. I think I have a list there on page um, yeah, so on the middle of page five, he starts studying, and then in 1523, Zwingli took offense preparing his 67 conclusions. Martin Luther had his 95 thesis. Zwingli has his 67 articles. This was the first public statement of the Reformed faith in Switzerland, and this is what he says. The Word of God was the sole rule of faith, and you're learning about that, sola scriptura, Right? where, you know, the whole Roman Catholic system was not built on one authority structure, the Word of God. It was built on three. They had the Word of God, the Word of man, in the sense of traditions of the church, and then, of course, the Word of the Pope, the, the magisterium, the church. And so he says, no, that's not, that's not true. It's the Word of God alone. Then he says, one can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's a massive departure. The true church is made up of those who live in Christ true saints. So again, he's recognizing this duplicity of those who claim to have something, but they really don't. And so he's recognizing that. And, and just because you have a, a nomenclature doesn't mean you're, 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 you have the new nature. You're a new creation in Christ. The mass was a memorial of Christ's sacrifice for man's redemption. That's a massive change. Um, he goes on, Christ was the only mediator between God and man, so praying to other people like Mary or St. Anne. So you can see even Zwingli's Reformation is getting even clearer on a lot of issues than even Luther because you're getting further away. It was easier for Zwingli because he didn't have as far to go because he had somebody there to stand on. That's what I was saying about Luther. He, was the, he took the first step, which that was a big step. Somebody has to pioneer. They have to go. And then Zwingli's watching and hearing and learning about this. And so he takes a step, and he goes even a little bit further than Luther, and you'll see that in a minute. So you can see the, the disputations that are happening and the struggle. During this time, another group arises, okay? So you have Luther goes, and then Zwingli goes, and they're getting further. Well, there's another group because Zwingli, like Luther, became a college professor, university professor, and he's teaching all these students. There was about 20, 25 of them. They would also come to his house, and he was teaching them. And all of a sudden, they start to see some contradictions in Zwingli's teaching as it pertained to, are you ready, infant baptism. And so they start hearing Zwingli talk about believer's baptism, and then he turns and starts talking about infant baptism, and his students hold him to task and say, wait a minute, you taught us about believer's baptism, but now... You've switched and you're talking about this thing called infant baptism. What's going on? And so they have this theological ruckus that happens there. Um, again, because, and this is so important, because of the wedding between the church and the state, the state was emphatic that infant baptism was biblical. And Zwingli did not want to separate from the state. He saw that as a vital importance to the life of the church. So he compromised what he had already taught and probably believed in his heart, he compromises for the sake of this state deal and says, no, no, believer's baptism. Well, then who are the people, these college students, who do they become? Are you ready? The Anabaptists. You heard that term? The Anabaptists. That's where that springs up. Now, that would be probably way closer to us than anybody 
we would, we would fall more in line with, with them. So that's what you had even, you know, Luther practiced infant baptism, but not by way of salvation, but by this interesting connection between the Old Testament covenant sign of circumcision and the New Testament covenant sign was baptism. And I have studied that eight ways to Sunday, and I can never figure out how they get there. It is the most confusing thing to me, how you can go from Old Testament circumcision to New Testament baptism and somehow see them connecting. I mean, just the, the acts themselves don't even look the same. It's just the craziest, but that's, in, and even today, you know, R.C. Sproul and guys who are in the Reformed, in that Reformed circle who still practice that, not by way of salvation, but by being part of the covenant faith, they see covenant children being blessed through this infant baptism and becoming part of the body, but yet they're not saved. It's the most confusing. It, it is very confusing. If you, if you really want the best discussion on the issue between believer's baptism and infant baptism, I highly encourage you to download Google. It'll come right up. Google John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul debating believer's baptism and infant baptism. It is awesome. It is still, it, they, they did that, I think, 20 years ago now. And it is still today talked about as one of the greatest debates showing, because here's why, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur are best friends totally disagree on this and a number of issues, and yet they're best friends. And watching them debate this and the charitable nature they did it, and yet the uncompromising nature. If you know anything about R.C. Sproul, and Tom knows him personally, Tom's been to his house, and yeah, I'll let Tom tell you about that. It's pretty amazing. But if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, I mean, the guy is just, the, he's the intellectual par excellence. I mean, the guy can wax on forever on church history. He's just phenomenal, just unbelievable gift to the church. But he's a, he's a true blue Presbyterian that embraces some of these things. And so when, when they were debating this, R.C. Sproul goes for like, I don't know, 45 minutes and just like you're just enamored by his understanding of church history when it comes to infant baptism and how long they've been practicing it. And he just is, he's a, you're like, oh, that's an open and shut case. And then they turn to John MacArthur and he goes, he looks at the audience and he said, and everything he just told you is never in the Bible. I mean, I mean, it's like, and, and, and even R.C. Sproul laughs because there's not one single verse. I mean, it's just, it's just, again, going back to, and you can even see John MacArthur's hermeneutic and how solid and strong it is where he says, yep, that's, he's true. Church history, there was a lot of this going on, but it's not true. We don't find our authority in church history. We go right back to the Bible, and he says, yeah, as much as I love you, brother, there's not one verse in all the Bible. And R.C. Sproul had no answer. I mean, he, had no, he even said that. And so, again, you, you should go back and see the, that's how you debate theological things, and that's how you don't compromise, and yet, you know, you're, you're not going to kill your friendship over, over that issue. Uh, and so, anyway, but in, for Zwingli, he did. So I bring all that up because he did not have a charitable debate. You know what he did? He ends up killing these guys. Yes, yes. So this is what I mean about... These magisterial reformers, their mindset. So what happens is the state now, the state sees these guys, they're rising up. They're, they're now separating from Zwingli, separating, of course, totally from Roman Catholicism. And they start performing baptisms, right, in the rivers there. And they start baptizing one another because they're believers. And they're like, it's commanded. Listen, the first act of obedience for a believer in Jesus Christ is baptism. That's the first demonstration that you are a follower of Jesus Christ is water baptism. And so they're believing this. They're recognizing it. They're, they, they've all been baptized as infants because they were all raised Roman Catholic. And they're realizing that doesn't, 
do anything, and we want to follow Christ now. We want to be obedient, so they start getting baptized. Well, the state's watching this and hearing about it. Well, of course, it doesn't take very long. They issue decrees for them to stop. They issue all kinds of these things. They don't, and then they get labeled what? The heretic. And in that day and age, to be labeled a heretic was to be rightfully penalized by the death penalty. So it gets really, really bad. So they end up mocking these guys, and what they do is, if you believe, they called them double dippers. That's what they, that's what they termed them. And so they even killed some of them by drownings in the river. And they said, okay, you will believe in this? So we'll, I mean, it sounds almost like, you know, witch trials. And, this, and, these, are, and these are people that would have sound doctrine. And I bring all this up because God is amazing in his sovereign orchestration of Scripture and our church and this class and sermons. So the whole sermon today is on sound doctrine. And one thing you learn when you study is, is the vital nature, the foundational nature of sound doctrine. But the other thing you learn is the critical nature of having your, all your doctrine sound, all of it, because the minute a sliver of your doctrine or a slice of your doctrine or one part of your doctrine starts to err, it's like a disease and it takes over. So you got Zwingli who has so, I mean, I just read you that list was phenomenal and his doctrine is so solid and yet he has this slice where it's off, and look what happens. Instead of it just being off, it goes way off. And that's why even last week when I was preaching, I was saying how, how vital and critical and how scary false teaching is and error is because it's that one slice that opens the door to go anywhere. So a lot of guys will talk about sound doctrine, and I'll explain what doctrine is and all of that this morning, but they'll talk about doctrine being this, this, this summarization of the whole, the whole of Scripture, and these, it's made up of component parts. And one guy has a really good analogy of it, and he talks about doctrine being like your body. It's made up of your arms, your legs, your legs, yeah, no, your head, your legs, your feet, right? You have all these component parts which make up your body, right? So you have a body of doctrine that is made up of all these component parts. The component parts would be the doctrine on the person of Christ, the doctrine on the, you know, the, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You have all these individual doctrines, teachings, it's all the doctrine means, all these individual teachings, and then they come together and make a component, a component whole, which is the whole of Scripture. Well, if any one of those doctrines start to err, it's like having cancer in your body, right? Your body as a whole is fine, but you have this spot, and many of us have had those spots on your arm or on your head, or where you have to get it cut off because it's a little bit of skin cancer. And what happens if you don't get it cut off? And the reason why we all go and get them cut off. Why? Because if you leave it there, it's just going to keep growing. And so you start to understand the vital nature of having sound doctrine. The word sound just means healthy, hygienic. It's, it's pure. It's clean all the way through. And why doctrine matters and why John MacArthur would not agree with R.C. Sproul. And most people say, well, that's really not a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. It is a very big deal because it opens up the door for other things. And the thing, like even with uh, R.C. Sproul and a, a few other issues I would have with him and his teaching, all stem out of the same thing. It's a hermeneutical issue. Uh, the feminist movement, the, I've talked about that uh, when I was preaching on the why women can't be pastors or elders. And that's an issue, a really big issue in this area. I'm finding out more and more as I live here longer. It's a massive issue with so many people in this area, and it's interesting to me. But 
Can I tell you why that is, is a scary issue? Because it's another one of these things. It's a doctrinal slice in your composite whole that is wrong. And, it, and you get to that conclusion, can I tell you, out of a hermeneutical deficiency. You're reading Scripture and you're seeing it wrongly and you come to that conclusion. And remember, remember, there's not one verse in all the Bible that ever speaks of a woman in pastoral leader. Not one. As a matter of fact, there are verses that say, Paul says, I shall not have a woman to have authority over man and to teach. So you have actually the direct opposite. You don't have any that say that there were women preachers. You actually have verses that say there shouldn't be. But somehow in, in, the, in the feminist mindset and even in the Christian feminist, they view Scripture and they see that. It's a hermeneutical problem, meaning they're studying Scripture in such a way that they come to that conclusion. If you come to that conclusion through your study of Scripture, what is to say you're not going to come to other conclusions? You see the danger? See, it's always a hermeneutic. It's always how you read Scripture. So it's not that, yeah, that's not a cardinal doctrine in the sense of, you know, if you believe that, you're not going to go to hell. That's not what I'm saying at all. So I'm not blowing that up as a heresy, not at all. But what I'm saying is the danger of that is it opens the door for you to embrace a doctrine that would be a cardinal doctrine. You see the, you see the danger of that, and you see that even in church history, where you, you, that's why you have a pastor who preaches to his own demise at times, or writes, if you got my love letter, or should I say my love diatribe, you know, to the nth degree, to be crystal clear and support everything from Scripture, and labors in preaching you know, even long sermons so that it's not misunderstood, so that it's totally seen from Scripture, so that we have sound doctrine, so that I have sound doctrine, because I'm scared if we don't, especially if I don't, because I know the danger. And studying church history even drives that further, because I don't want to be like this. So you have the Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists, well, I'll get there in a minute. I'll have a whole thing here at the end on them. But so something happens with Zwingli. So all of this is happening with the, with the Anabaptists in Switzerland, and there's all kinds of stuff going on there, and it's not pretty. And I'll talk about the radical Anabaptists in a minute because there were some fringe crazies, and, we'll, and as there still are, and we'll talk about that. But anyway, you, you, you have a summation of the differences between the Anabaptists and Zwingli on page 8. You can look at that later, and you can see some... Um, clear teachings there. Um, you know, the Anabaptists, they, these sons are not yet believers. So again, they're talking about not baptizing infants because they're not yet believers. I'm, I'm on the page eight in the middle there. They require believers baptism. The New Testament baptism is not related to the Old Testament circumcision, like I was saying. Household baptisms, they would try to defend this as like Acts, what is it, Acts 16, where the whole household, yeah, the whole, or it says he and his whole household were baptized. Well, they say, as I would say, yeah, that just means all the adults that were present that were believers got baptized. It didn't mean children. Um, there's no reference even to children being there. So, you, you know, so if you're going to build your case on that, that's, a, again, a hermeneutical, very shady. Um, the brethren sought to eliminate all the Bible is silent on. So, and I have this in the beginning of your notes. I skipped over it. But one thing Zwingli brought in as well was called the, was called the regulative principle. And so it was this idea that if it's not in Scripture, then we don't do it. So they got rid of the organs. They got rid of the instruments because they, now I don't know how. Again, you have to look at his hermeneutic. He's like, man, all of Psalms is all songs filled with instruments. I mean, you read Psalm 150, it's like, man, there's every instrument you can think of. It's just in Psalm 50. So I'm not sure what he was reading, but again, they, they literally, they, 
He didn't go as far as some of his followers where they actually burned organs, which is really sad to think about. He locked it so that they couldn't use it in the service. And so again, it, there's just a lot of stuff going on. One thing that you need to know about church history was that Martin Luther and Zwingli eventually did meet. There was this meeting between the two of them to try to come together. Tom's smiling because you were at the castle where they met. Yeah, Tom's been there in Marburg, right? Yep. So they met in Marburg. They met in this castle. They were brought together by some of Luther's um, compadres, and they were, they were trying to figure out, can we unite forces, so to speak, theologically, and even strengthen our case in this Reformation even more? So they met over, a, over I think, three days, and they worked on a, like 15 specific theological um, differences and, and common ground to try to, you know, define it. And they worked it all the way out except for one thing. They had all, all 14 of the 15. They were like, all right, we got this. We're, we're united. And they get down to, you, you, do you know what it was? The Lord's Supper. Get down to the Lord's Supper. And again, this is the funny thing about these guys. Zwingli was far closer to what the biblical role was. Luther wasn't. So uh, going back to the Catholic Mass, they believed in what's, what was called um, uh, transubstantiation, where the 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 blood and the bread and all of that transformed. That's what's called transubstantiation. They transformed into the body of Christ. Well, Luther said, no, no, that's not right. It, it doesn't do that. It's always bread. It's always blood. It's all that. He says, but Christ is over the elements. It's, it's, again, it's this semantics. You're trying to figure out what does this mean? He said, Christ doesn't, he doesn't embody the elements, but he's always over the elements. And that's called consubstantiation, meaning he's, he's around, he's over, he's He's through, but he's not in. And you're just like, I don't even understand what that, what that means. So then Zwingli, he says, listen, it's none of that. It's just a memorial service. It's just a remembrance. It's, it's spiritual, of course, and it's important, of course, but it's just an act of remembrance, which is what Jesus said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So Zwingli nailed it, and Luther, you know, again, being the, the hardhead that he was, he's like, ah, this is crazy. I can't part, you know, I can't, can't team up with you, and he leaves, and there separates what could have been an interesting, an interesting change in the Reformation had they been brought together. So that's an interesting part of history that you need to be aware of. Now, before we close, I want to talk about on page, on page, um, there's a summary on page 11 of Zwingli and his theology. He believed in the sovereignty of God and creation and salvation. Great, very important, very biblical. Zwingli clearly taught predestination and divine providence. The Bible clearly teaches that. The Bible trumps human tradition. The Bible teaches that. Thus, an emphasis on expository preaching, since the Bible must be clearly explained to the congregation. I think Zwingli started preaching in Matthew 1.1, and he literally started in the New Testament. I believe that's part of his problem. He needed more Old Testament. That would have helped him. But another part of his problem was he preached, and I've read this, and I'm like, I don't know how he did this. He preached from Matthew 1-1 through Revelation in six years. I said, I think that's part of his problem, especially if you know my style of preaching. I don't think I could get through Matthew in six years, let alone, let alone the whole New Testament. So clearly he was moving at lightning pace and missed a lot of stuff. But he did believe in expository preaching, verse by verse, explanation, all of that, which is a blessing. Um, true religion must supersede ceremonial piety. Basically, he believed that it's an external, it's an internal change, not an external uh, only. He believed justification by faith. So you can read those. 
But then on the bottom of page 11, being a magisterial reformer who retained the state church paradigm and suffered doctrinally as a result. Now you're starting to understand. He believed that that state was the arm of the church and he compromised his doctrine to keep that. Extremely harsh to his opponents, both Catholic and Anabaptist. Sometimes more guided by humanism than clear biblical teaching. I don't know if I, if I remember this being in the notes, but, but Zwingli was greatly impacted by Erasmus. You remember Erasmus was the guy who, who traveled around and got all the Greek uh, manuscripts and pulled them together and, and really established what was the, at that time the first uh, Greek New Testament, which Martin Luther used greatly to, to translate the, the, the Bible into German and what Zwingli used really as part of his Reformation. But the problem with Erasmus was he, was he was heavily steeped in humanism and Zwingli met Erasmus multiple times in Erasmus's house and they spent a lot of time together. And you can see that humanism comes out in Zwingli's life. Again, an interesting point of church history about being careful who you hang with. And so, but anyway, going on to page 12, okay? And I won't read this, but I put it in your notes for help. Is again, an explanation about the reality of of the culture of the day and why this separation of church and state, or better put, this right understanding of the state and what they were supposed to be and the church, what it was supposed to be, is so vital in how these guys struggled. And um, Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, for sure, um, this becomes a blight on, on, their, on their life and ministry. And we'll talk about John Calvin next week. And so you get to these guys called the Anabaptists. Now, on page 13, I give you a, de a definition of the Anabaptists, and I start to explain to you who they were. As every group has, right, even within, within like Christianity, the, it's, a, it's a large term, which I don't think is very helpful anymore because there's just so many people that fit into that. But within Christianity, you have Orthodox Christianity, you have, you have Evangelical Christianity, you have Liberal Christianity, you have charismatic Christians. I mean, it's just, it's just groups, and it just gets really confusing. But even within each group, right, you have within the evangelical Christianity, you have more fundamentalist Christ Christians, you have a little bit more moderate Christians. I mean, you just groups within groups. Well, the Anabaptists had that as well, and I give you some of the list of those groups. You had um, more radical guys who were basically mystics and who sided with the Anabaptists because they liked the idea of of separating and, and, the, and the radical movement that was taking place. You had political fanatics who were more in it for the, for the politics and trying to establish even another, another state. You had then the Swiss brethren. Those were more the guys who were around Zwingli and they were more of the solid theological guys. They were called the Swiss brethren. And then you had really what becomes the Mennonites. So the Mennonites and the Amish, what we have today, are all direct descendants of the Anabaptists and, and the different groups that break out of that, okay? And you can see, to be Anabaptist, and it's in their theology, uh, and you'll understand this now after what I've said, so this idea of the state and the church being a real problem and separating from the state enormously, having nothing to do with them, it's called pacifism, where you're passive, you are passive in anything, you don't go to war, you don't enlist in the army, you don't have anything to do with that. That is all byproduct of the Reformation and these guys separating, and that's why an Amish person does not go to war, does not sign up in the army or a Mennonite or whatever. It's all born out of that theological perspective. You start to understand where all of this comes from, even in history. It's pretty amazing. And so, yeah, and so in, in the 
what follows is a list of some of these guys and who they were. Andreas uh, Karlstad on page 13, he was actually a student of Martin Luther. And if you remember back last week, I mentioned him and it's in your notes. He was the guy, he was the guy that created some real problems for Martin Luther because he created the firestorm, which becomes the peasants' war, where all these poor people get killed, and it's born out of even some of Martin Luther's teaching, but more um, Andreas Karlstad as he was pushing for political revolt, political um, reform, rather than like Martin was trying to, trying to bring about. Thomas Munster, he's on, he's on page 14. He was another one of these radical reformers. You're going to hear a lot about him if you study. Um, Caspar Zwinkenfeld, he was, um, he was another one of these uh, more, more or less like a charismatic Anabaptist, and they're still uh, followers um, of him even today. And then you have along that same line the Zwickian prophets. They're still followers of them today. You'll find them around our country. Um, and um, you keep following these guys. I've given you a list of them. And I think on page, uh, where's it at here? They keep going. And I, and I put these here so that you could see all the different leaders and groups that come off of, that come off of the Anabaptists. And Conrad Grable on page 17, Felix Mons, these were the first couple guys that got killed. They were, they were pretty solid guys theologically. We would have lined up with them in so many ways. And then Mino Simmons becomes essentially, he becomes the main guy for the Mennonites, hence Mennonites. They're named after their ultimate leader, Mino Simmons. So you can start to see now enough. We're further, we're far enough along in church history where it's starting to impact our world. You're starting to see the seeds of church history, even though we're still in, in Europe and in, in that region, how it's already, how it's spread eventually to America. And so you get to see some of that in the lives of the Anabaptists and what they believe. So yes, um, many of the Anabaptist teachings would be far closer to ours or I would be far closer to them in, in a lot of things. As I wrap up, I'll tell you, the, reformed, the reformers, especially the magisterial reformers like Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin in particular, because again, the further you get away, the, the, the better these guys get. So Calvin has even less of the issues that Luther had, that Zwingli had, because he's further away and it just keeps going because their, their theology is getting more shaped and all of this, and I'll explain some of that next week. But one thing you're going to find, the magisterial reformers, and this will help you if, you if you've ever read anything theologically, you will connect with this right away. And this will even help you even in Presbyterians like, like R.C. Sproul. When you, when you read the magisterial reformers, they are rock solid and unbelievably helpful when it comes to issues of soteriology. When it comes to issues of salvation, soteriology, that's what that is. When you're dealing with salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ, you're not going to find anybody better than Martin Luther, John Calvin, R.C. Sproul, like these guys who are of that vein, right? But if you read them on, on areas of, here you go, ecclesiology, that's the practice of the church, you're going to struggle. You are going to struggle because they all fall in line with this weird, strange view of the church and the state, and it impacted their so infant baptism and all those kind of things, the practice of the church. So, um, yes, reformed in soteriology? Absolutely. I'm with the reformers. Absolutely. Follow them, hook, line, and sinker in that. But then when you get into the practice, the ecclesiology, the practice of the church, man, it's, yeah, you want to keep moving. Keep moving. They, they were off. They didn't go far enough. 
Lord's Supper, of baptism, all of that. So that helps you start to see the blessing of the Reformation and yet the, the curse of it in the sense of the weaknesses of it. All right, good. Let's get ready for worship. Hey, you all, thank you for tuning in today. And uh, as we always do, we end with the gospel. So here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The biblical gospel starts with God. Out of nothing, God made everything, including you and me, to bring himself much pleasure. His purpose for us as humanity was to love, obey, and enjoy him perfectly. Instead of this, man has sinned against our loving creator and acted in rebellion. Since God is good and just, he must punish sin that deserves eternal, conscious punishment under God's wrath in hell. But God, being merciful, loving, and gracious, had a plan to punish sin, and so be a just judge, and yet forgive sinners, and so display mercy, by sending his own Son, Jesus Christ, the co-equal and co-eternal Son of God, to take on human flesh, fulfilling his perfect requirements in the place of sinners, loving, obeying, and enjoying him perfectly. Furthermore, Jesus bore the full wrath of God upon the cross, and he satisfied the eternal anger of God, standing in a place of sinners, though he was himself perfectly sinless. God showed his acceptance of Christ's sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead after three days in the grave. Now Jesus commands everyone everywhere to repent, turn from their sin, and believe, trust in him. This is the glorious transaction. God then charges Christ's perfection to the sinner and no longer views him as an enemy, but instead an adopted son and daughters covered in the perfect righteousness of his son. We can now have peace with God and have eternal life with him forever. It's true for every person in every culture, in every place, in every language through all time. So our response to this good news is repentance and faith. Dear hearer, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and this day be reconciled to God. Thanks for tuning in today. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment. If you have a question, please send them to the Truth Talks Podcast at gmail.com. Visit our Instagram and Twitter at the Truth Talks Podcast and visit our website at bellcroftbiblechurch.org. Delighting in the word that we might walk in the truth. Ministry of Bellcroft Bible Church.